Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Mideast soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. The Biden administration is mulling whether to grant Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman sovereign immunity in a case related to the 2018 killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist's fiance, and a nonprofit organization he helped found filed the lawsuit in a Washington district court. The court has extended its original August 1 deadline until October 3 for the administration to advise Judge John Bates on whether it believes that Mr. Bin Salman qualifies for sovereign immunity, a status usually reserved for heads of state, heads of government, and foreign ministers. It is hard to believe that the administration would acquiesce in refusing the Crown Prince immunity following U.S. President Joe Biden's July pilgrimage to the kingdom and the energy crisis sparked by sanctions imposed on Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine. Mr. Biden's visit intended to repair relations with a country that he had described as a pariah state during his election campaign. Moreover, it came after Mr. Biden had refused to deal directly with Mr. Bin Salman in the president's first 18 months in office. It is equally unlikely that the court would go against the likely advice by the administration to grant immunity to Mr. Bin Salman. One consideration in the administration's deliberations on the granting of immunity may be whether Mr. Bin Salman may want to be more cooperative in return for immunity in helping address the energy crisis by pumping more oil and pressuring the organization of oil exporting countries, OPEC, and its partners to increase their production levels in a bid to reduce prices. Mr. Bin Salman has so far given little, if anything, in response to Mr. Biden's pilgrimage, but has benefited from the boost the president gave to the Crown Prince's rehabilitation in the United States and Europe. The killing of Mr. Khashoggi, together with the Yemen war, turned Mr. Bin Salman into a tarnished, unwelcome figure in Western capitals. In the wake of Mr. Biden's pilgrimage, Mr. Bin Salman has made his first trip to Europe with stops in Greece and France. Whatever the judge decides, the stakes go far beyond the legal aspects and the political fallout of his eventual ruling. The likely ruling in favor of Mr. Bin Salman will spotlight double standards in politics and policy making and the lack of a moral and ethical yardstick. Too often, opportunism in the absence of inclusive moral and ethical standards allows leaders, officials, policymakers, and politicians to prioritize their interests rather than those of the nation or affected people elsewhere. The likely ruling will also raise the question why governments, leaders, and officials should be held to a different standard before the law. The issue of double standards is closely related to a debate about the principle of universal jurisdiction that legal systems, 
like those of Spain and Belgium have appropriated for themselves and how they relate to the mandate of the International Criminal Court or ICC in The Hague. In 2004, the Spanish parliament curtailed the country's universal jurisdiction after a Spanish judge issued arrest warrants for former Chinese president Jiang Zemin and four senior Chinese officials on charges of human rights abuses in Tibet. The jurisdiction enabled the prosecution of Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet that has yet to establish a standard for accountability. A recent special edition of International Affairs, an academic journal, implicitly approaches the debate about the lack of a moral and ethical yardstick to undergird politics and policy making by suggesting that academics, analysts, and practitioners revisit the maxim of seeking to replicate past policy successes as the basis for the crafting of new policies. Instead, contributors to the journal argue that examining how to avoid catastrophic failure might be a better way of going about it. In doing so, the editors of the special edition, Daniel Dreisner and Amrita Narihlar, again implicitly call for out-of-the-box thinking. They propose the application of the medical sector's Hippocratic Oath to international relations that obliges doctors to avoid doing harm. The Hippocratic Oath principle in IR or international relations serves as a cautionary warning against action merely for action's sake. There is a bias in politics towards doing something in response to an event. Doing something, however, is not the same as doing the right thing. A Hippocratic Oath asks policymakers to weigh the costs and risks of viable policy options before proceeding. The editors argue in their introduction to the special edition. Responding to former White House Chief of Staff and one-time Secretary of State and of the Treasury, James Baker's observation that policy solutions often create problems that need to be ameliorated at a later stage. Mr. Dreisner and Mrs. Narihla note that this is an endemic problem created by the mismatch between the grand arc of international relations and the powerful short-term incentives that political leaders face. The issue of inclusive morals and ethics in politics and policy making has been further pushed to the forefront by the fact that many recent international events and trends, including the controversy over the 2020 US presidential election, the British exit from the European Union, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, ethno-religious nationalism in Russia, China, Hungary, Serbia, India, and Israel, as well as among American Christian nationalists and bloodshed in the Middle East, involve civilizational choices and policies that often violate international law and challenge a world order based on heterogeneous nation states and or propagate exclusionist policies. Inclusive morals and ethics come into play when conservatives claim civilizational superiority 
on the basis of an alleged more fundamental development and argue that the fundamental foreign policy blunder of our times that has been at the root of the West's promotion of wrong policies in lower civilizational level societies, such as parliamentary democracy, religious freedom, excessive liberties, etc., that have proven highly destructive in the stability and advancement of many lower civilizational level societies that were not ready for them. Morals and ethics also become important in countering the argument put forward by conservatives and segments of the left that immigration and multiculturalism spark civilizational trauma and severe terror attacks. The implicit equation of Islam and terrorism ignores the fact that Christian nationalists account for a fair share of recent violent attacks, including the 2011 killings in Norway by Anders Bering Breivik, the 2011 Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, and the 2019 mosque murders in New Zealand. Conservatives and civilizationists frame their politics and policies as a cultural battle rather than an expression of racism. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban argues that his opposition to the mixing of Europeans and non-Europeans and pursuit of a homogeneous Christian Hungary is not a racial issue for us. This is a question of culture. Quite simply, our civilization should be preserved as it is now. Mr. Orban's philosophy echoes far-right Russian ideologue Alexander Dugin, who asserts the cultural battle is a war of ideas. We are not part of the global civilization. We are a civilization by ourselves. We had no other possibility to prove that Huntington was right without attacking Ukraine. Dugin was referring to the late Harvard University political scientist, Samuel Huntington who controversially predicted a post-Cold War clash of civilizations that would be fought not between countries, but between cultures. In his usually influential ultra-nationalist tone, the foundations of geopolitics, the geopolitical future of Russia, published in the 1990s, Mr. Dugan envisions a clash of civilization between the West and a Eurasian bloc supported by Russia. The ideologue further argues that it is especially important to introduce geopolitical disorder, encouraging all kinds of separatism and ethnic, social, and racial conflicts, actively supporting all dissident movements, extremist, racist, and sectarian groups. In doing so, Mr. Dugan unwittingly makes the argument for a reintroduction of inclusive morals and ethics into politics and policy making. Their absence and the lack of a consensus on an inclusive definition of national interest has led to a world in which gaps in income distribution have become ever more yawning. More and more societal groups are marginalized and disenfranchised. Racism and re repression are on the rise and mainstream and the world is moving ever closer to the abyss of a third global war. Discussing the attempted killing in August 
of Salman Rushdie and his own experience of being surrounded by bodyguards, Turkish Literature Nobel Prize winner Ohan Pamuk puts a share of the responsibility for a greater adherence to inclusive morals and ethics on journalists and writers who have the luxury to work in an environment of freedom. Mr. Pamuk noted in an article in The Atlantic that Mr. Rushdie's assailant was a 24-year-old clerk in a department store. If we hope to see the principle of freedom of expression thrive in society, the courage of writers like Salman Rushdie will not suffice. We must also be brave enough to think about the sources of the furious hatred they are subjected to, Mr. Pamuk wrote. What we need to do is use our privilege of free speech to acknowledge the role of class and cultural differences in society, the sense of being second or third class citizens, of feeling invisible, unrepresented, unimportant, like one counts for nothing, which can drive people toward extremism, he went on to say. In many cases, these differences in class and social status have become taboo subjects that nobody wishes to hear or dares speak about. The news media, reluctant to appear to be somehow condoning violence, don't dwell on the fact that the people who turn to it tend to be poor, uneducated, and desperate, Mr. Pamuk said. Key questions dominate discussions about civilizationalism and the importance of inclusive morals and ethics for politics and policy making. These questions include, what does it mean to be a nation? What do citizens need to agree on in order to be or become a people? And must the people be united or can they be divided? In a twist of irony, Islam scholar and public intellectual Shadi Hamid notes that debate in the 21st century about existential issues of culture, identity, and religion initially emerged in the Middle East during the 2011 popular Arab revolts, and only several years later in other parts of the world. During the heady, sometimes frightening days of the Arab Spring, the region was struggling over some of the same questions Americans are contending with today, Mr. Hamid says. In the absence of a strong liberal trend and or a secular liberal consensus, the debate was dominated by illiberal Islamists who were carrying the banner of anti-liberalism before anti-liberalism was cool. Changing the foundations on which policies are crafted and politics are conducted is an almost utopian task. It is likely to be a generational endeavor driven by religious and non-religious independent civil society groups that harness a combination of activism and education rather than governmental non-governmental organizations that do a regime's bidding. To kickstart the process, media, including social media platforms, would have to play an essential role in changing what voters and the public expect from their leaders, whether elected or not. Similarly, public relations, crisis management, and lobbying firms would have to be held accountable to a code of conduct 
that emphasizes truthfulness, transparency, and ensuring that campaigns are fact-based rather than built on knowingly false or manufactured information and on genuine grassroots organizations instead of special purpose proxies created to promote a narrative. That was the motto of the late controversial American strategic advisor, Arthur Rubenstein, who is credited for the electoral victories of Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Benjamin Netanyahu, and Viktor Orban. Filmmaker Edo Zuckerman, a close associate of Mr. Finkelstein, who was dubbed Arthur the Terrible by his opponents, quoted the strategist as saying, during the campaign, you don't lie in anything that you publish. There must be a tested and true basis of truth to what you do. In addition to a measure of honesty, stakeholders and the public would have to push for a return to civil interaction in which opposing parties listen to one another rather than increasingly seek to repress, intimidate, and crowd out divergent and dissident voices. One example of an effort to restore inclusive morals and ethics to policy and policy making is Christian opposition to Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism creates this false idol of power and leads us to confuse political authority with religious authority. And in that way causes us to put our patriotism, our allegiance to America above our allegiance to God, says Amanda Tyler, the executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and lead organizer of Christians against Christian nationalism. She argues that Christian nationalism violates the teachings of loving your neighbor as yourself. Mrs. Tyler's activism underscores that it is likely that morals and ethics embedded in respect of human dignity and rights as the organizing principle of politics and policy making will be grounded in shared principles and values derived from religion, irrespective of one's attitude towards religion or religiosity. No alternative to religion has emerged as a moral and ethical yardstick for societies and systems of governance, whether re religious or secular. Major attempts at creating a yardstick, for example, by communism, Kemalism, the philosophy on which Mustafa Kemal Ataturk carved the modern Turkish state out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire, or Zionism that sought to transform an amorphous religious and national identity into a more clearly defined Jewish identity, lost their relevance once they were no longer fit for purpose. As a result, almost no contemporary state, no matter how different, has a societal, moral, and ethical yardstick that is not inspired by religion. Take, for example, the United States and Saudi Arabia. Both have religiously inspired moral and ethical yardsticks. In the United States, Christianity is the overriding inspiration. In the kingdom, it is Islam. Of course, one significant difference is the positioning of the yardstick. In the United States, it was historically a benchmark 
rather than a hard and fast rule to which adherence was voluntary. Adherence was by and large regulated socially rather than legally. In the kingdom, the yardstick is the religious law that authorities harshly enforced. Perhaps surprisingly, China too fits the bill. It does so in the recognition of the centrality of religion by seeking often brutally to control, if not repress religion. Infusing morals and ethics into politics and policy and tackling double standards and applying the law come together in Judge Bates' court case and Mr. Biden's effort to defend democracy at home and abroad. The ability to do so depends on both the US administration and civil society. One approach may be that the administration lays out a roadmap that tackles the legitimate charge that US policy is hypocritical by establishing criteria for maintaining morals and ethics in domestic and foreign policy to justify instances where that is not immediately possible. Civil society would have to hold the administration and businesses' feet to the fire. A draft of the Pentagon's 1992 defense planning guidance seemed to take a stab at crafting a roadmap. The draft stipulated that while the US cannot become the world's policeman by assuming responsibility for righting every wrong, we will retain preeminent responsibility for addressing selectively those wrongs which threaten not only our interests, but those of our allies or friends, or which could seriously unsettle international relations. Irrespective of its merits, the proposed definition was problematic because it was put forward in the context of a strategy that called for a permanent US military dominance in much of Eurasia that would allow the United States rather than the United Nations Security Council to act as the ultimate guarantor of international peace and security. The strategy envisioned achieving that goal by deterring potential competitors from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role and by preempting by whatever means the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Key elements of that strategy have guided US foreign policy since then even if the draft in its final form was watered down after a leak sparked a public uproar because of its overarching imperial character. Those elements were reinforced in the wake of the 9-11 Al-Qaeda attacks two decades ago on New York and Washington with devastating consequences. As a senator at the time, Mr. Biden ridiculed the draft as literally a Pax Americana, it won't work. You can be the world's superpower and still be unable to maintain peace throughout the world, he quipped. Another approach argues that the solution is not an overarching doctrine or construct for American foreign policy, because unlike in the Cold War, the world is confronted with too many challenges that cannot be squeezed into one ideological construct. Moreover, America's rivals, Russia and China, command natural resources, economic heft, and a degree of centrality to global commerce that the Soviet Union could only have dreamt of. 
That does not mean that the United States should simply wing it and approach every foreign policy issue in isolation. But instead of a single big idea, Washington should use a number of principles and practices to guide its foreign policy and reduce the risk that the coming decade will produce a calamity, says Richard Haas, the president of the New York-based Council on Foreign Relations and former senior State Department and National Security Council official. Mr. Dreisner and Mrs. Nariklar, the editors of the International Affairs Special Edition, make a similar point by suggesting that this margin for policy error is getting thinner across the globe. States in the 21st century will be confronting an array of Machiavellian and Malthusian threats, great power competition, political polarization, pandemics, climate change, and so forth. The problem with Mr. Haas's approach is that it amounts to a repackaging of a realpolitik that is not guided by morals and ethics, but by the notion of stability rather than principle. Mr. Haas may be right that democracy promotion needs to start in the United States, where democracy is on the defensive. The biggest risk to US security in the decade to come is to be found in the United States itself. A country divided against itself cannot stand, nor can it be effective in the world. As a fractitious United States will not be viewed as a reliable, or predictable partner or leader, nor will it be able to tackle its domestic challenges, Mr. Haas says. To be sure, Mr. Biden's positioning of the preservation of democracy and the strengthening of democratic resilience abroad is the one pillar of his foreign policy that dovetails neatly with his struggle to stymie efforts to undermine democratic norms and the principles of fair elections and peaceful transition of power at home. Mr. Biden has dubbed this domestic endeavor a battle for the soul of this nation. In effect, Mr. Biden's emphasis on preservation rather than promotion of democracy constitutes a fine tuning of the concept of liberal internationalism that revolves around the idea that global stability comes from democratic systems free markets, and participation in American-led multinational organizations. While not surrendering the principle, it implicitly suggests that stability can be achieved in a world in which democratic and non-democratic systems of governance can cohabitate and compete at the same time. Scholar and journalist C. Mohan Raja suggests that one prerequisite for successful cohabitation is a U.S. return to the classical diplomatic effort of winning friends and influencing people. That, Mr. Mohan Rajas says, would have to involve a decisive shift away from the Western preachiness of the last three decades. Instead, the United States would have to focus on the individual concerns, vulnerabilities, and interests of key states in the developing world. The Biden administration's framing of the Ukraine war as a confrontation between democracies and autocracies is a case in point. The administration would have likely found a greater resonance in Asia, 
Africa, and Latin America had it portrayed the conflict in less ideological terms and narrowly stuck to what the war is about, the defense of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity as a matter of international law. Even so, the question remains whether cohabitation and competition is a sufficient basis in the 21st century for ideological and geopolitical rivals to cooperate in tackling global problems such as global inequality, environmental calamity, economic recovery, and nuclear proliferation, as well as emergencies like a pandemic. The administration's problem is that the line between democracy preservation and democracy promotion is potentially blurry and could prove to be at best cosmetic. Mr. Biden has requested hundreds of millions of dollars from Congress for pro-democracy initiatives, including two programs aimed at supporting anti-corruption efforts, independent journalism, elections, and pro-democracy activists. Whether there is a difference between preservation and promotion is likely to be determined by how and where those funds, if allocated, are distributed. The example of Saudi Arabia and the run-up and aftermath of Mr. Biden's July pilgrimage to the kingdom pinpoints the pitfalls of crafting a foreign policy that embraces both morals and ethics, as well as realpolitik. Mr. bin Salman has stepped up his crackdown on dissent and civil society activism since the Biden visit. Two Saudi women arrested in 2021 were sentenced in August by terrorism courts to respectively 34 and 45 years in prison for tweets that allegedly used the internet to tear the social fabric of the kingdom and violated public order by using social media. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia executed 81 people in March at a moment that the United States and the kingdom were likely already negotiating the visit. Meanwhile, Mr. Biden departed Saudi Arabia with little, if anything, to show for himself in terms of geopolitical, energy, or human rights gestures. Not even the release of U.S. nationals held in for political reasons in Saudi prisons or banned from leaving the kingdom. This is not to say that Mr. Haas is incorrect in arguing that democracy promotion often leads to a push for regime change that either backfires or fails. Instead, he suggests a foreign policy that favors multilateralism. It is better to pursue realistic partnerships of the like-minded, which can bring a degree of order to the world, including specific domains of limited order, if not quite world order, Mr. Haas says. Political scientist Igor Istomin bolsters Mr. Haas's argument by pointing out that foreign interference in the politics of a country by supporting proxies is unlikely to enable those groups to gain power. And if they do, they are more likely than not to encounter difficulties in converting such accomplishments into benefits for an interfering state and will be stymied by the emotional grievances from unfulfilled expectations. The forever US wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are exhibit one. At first glance, 
Much of this may seem to be pie in the sky, a return to a modicum of inclusive morals and ethics infused policy and policy making is not a process that is going to produce results overnight. However, the fact is that the current concept of politics and policy making has put the world, irrespective of individual political systems, on a debilitating and dangerous downward spiral. A healthy debate about the foundation of politics and policymaking is one way to kickstart attempts to reverse course. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Also, thank you to all who have demonstrated their appreciation for my column by becoming paid subscribers. This allows me to ensure that it continues to have maximum impact. Maintaining free distribution means that news websites, blogs, and newsletters across the globe can republish it. I launched my column 12 years ago. To borrow a phrase from an early proprietor of The Observer, it offers readers, listeners, and viewers the scoop of interpretation. If you are able and willing to support the column, please become a paid subscriber by clicking on Substack on the subscription button at www.jamesmdorsey.substack.com and choosing one of the subscription options. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Thank you, take care, and best wishes.